0: Is there a purpose in the assignment? Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliott. She called us to live to a higher standard each day, not to be satisfied with a shallow substitute, a little religion, when we could have God's best for our lives. As this series continues, we'll hear from family, friends, and others all influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. We continue our extended series about Jim Elliott and Operation Alka and other events in Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Today we feature two Gateway to Joy programs. The first, Program 119, originally aired in March of 1989, A Good Reason for Living. Also that same month, A Divine Appointment, number 120 in the series, Joining us today, the president of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, Kathy Rieg. Sometimes looking through somebody's personal items can help you learn more about what they really valued. Kathy will share some of her thoughts about Elizabeth. Also, Elizabeth's friend, Jean Hamilton, will join us and uh, talk about Elizabeth as a Titus II woman. First, though, A Good Reason for Living, our first Gateway to Joy program today. Have you thought about how having a good reason for living relates to having a good reason to die? Think about the viewpoint of a Life magazine photographer, about what went on in the kitchen of Nate Saint's home, and about how Elizabeth prayed a safe, unlikely, maybe even ridiculous prayer.
1: You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about a good reason for living. Last month, we told the story of one of the five men in Ecuador who gave their lives in attempting to reach a tribe of Indians called the Alcas. I wanted to read you the story as seen from the standpoint of a Life magazine photographer by the name of Cornell Kappa. Cornell was asked to go to Ecuador as soon as the word had reached New York that five American men were missing. Nobody knew whether the men were dead or alive, and so Cornell immediately hopped the first plane that he could, came to Ecuador, and spent several days until the bodies were discovered. The Air Force Rescue Service from Panama had come down to attempt to rescue these men And this is Cornell's story, as he told it later on. The Air Force Rescue Service's helicopter landed, and I jumped out just as the rescue party was taking the last body to a common grave. The atmosphere was fantastic. Nervous hands, fingered triggers, and eyes were trained on the oppressive wall of jungle. I did not have to ask why. A storm came on with tropical suddenness. Rain fell in buckets. Dim figures moved through an eerie light. Grim and weary missionaries looked for the last time at their friends, whose bodies they could no longer identify. One of them said, It's better this way. I feel less miserable. There followed our homeward trek through Alka territory. The canoes, overloaded, leaked at the slightest movement, and I sat like a protective mother hen shielding my cameras from the water. Major Malcolm Nuremberg, an American Air Force attache from Quito, led the party, with his carbine poised at all times out of the danger area. At the missionary base of Chalmeta, five women were waiting for our return. Through radio communication, they knew that all was lost, but they wanted to be told in minute detail everything that had happened. Dr. Art Johnston, who was in the rescue party, spared them nothing, as he faced them in the kitchen of Nate Saint's home. Their faces were drawn and gaunt, but there were no complaints, no self-pity. I flew back to New York, carrying with me the pictures of Operation Alka taken by Nate Saint. Among them was the last strip of film developed out of his camera that had been found in the river. It showed the three Alkas of this hitherto unphotographed tribe. The men's diaries gave many details of the missionary contact with them, but the hopes of ever finding out exactly what had occurred on the beach and why the seemingly friendly contact had turned into massacre were slim indeed. The answer lay buried deep in the jungle with the unreachable aukas. For me, at least, Cornell's story goes on, the story seemed to have come to an end. The widows believed that their husband's death was not the meaningless tragedy it appeared to many, no thoughts of revenge crossed their minds. On the contrary, they felt with an increased sense of urgency the need to bring their message of love and redemption to the Alcas. During the following year, I learned of the quiet determination with which the widows continued their work in the missionary field in Ecuador. Marge Saint and Mary Lou McCulley, with three children each, moved to Quito to work in missionary headquarters. Elizabeth Elliott and Barbara Udarian stayed in the jungle with their small families, working among the Quichua and Hebrew Indians. I decided to visit them again and try to understand the urge that lay behind their extraordinary dedication. The peace of soul, the mental and physical security shown by all those I had visited defied my comprehension. They never stopped praying and hoping that one day the Aukas might make their first hesitant steps to the outside world. I visited Elizabeth Elliot at the Quichua mission station of Shandia, it was strange to see this gaunt, tall, blonde American woman walk through the jungle, often shoeless because it was easier that way, but with a wary eye for poisonous snakes. With her, also barefoot, went her daughter Valerie, a tiny, ethereal creature who seemed to walk not on the earth but slightly above it. Elizabeth taught at the school that Jim and Pete Fleming had established, did medical work, and continued translating parts of the Bible into the Kichwa tongue. She was firm on everything that involved her faith, Valerie, and herself. Where I go, Valerie goes. I believe the Lord expects me to be as careful as possible about Valerie's health in our home, but when I accept the hospitality from Indians, I trust the Lord to take care of the results. I feel it's more important for me and Valerie to share the Indian life than to cut ourselves off from them in order to preserve our health. I wondered how Elizabeth could reconcile Jim's death at the hands of the Alcas and the Lord's apparent failure to protect him from them. Her answer came back without hesitation. I prayed for the protection of Jim, that is, physical protection. The answer the Lord gave transcended what I had in mind. He gave protection from disobedience, and through Jim's death, accomplished results the magnitude of which only eternity can show. I left Shandia a bit shaken and kept on hearing Elizabeth's parting words. It gives me a much more personal desire to reach the Alcas. The fact that Jesus Christ died for all makes me interested in the salvation of all, but the fact that Jim loved and died for the Alcas intensifies my love for them. That's the end of Cornell Kappa's account of what he saw when he came to Ecuador to cover the story for Life magazine. Incidentally, I do keep up with Cornell Kappa. I see him every now and then. About a year ago, we visited him again in New York. He's still a photographer. He's the director of the International Museum of Photography on Fifth Avenue. And I don't think he's ever quite been able to get out of his mind that missionary story. He had never heard of missionaries before, could not imagine what five American men would be doing among a tribe of savages unless they were anthropologists, so the story held all kinds of interest for him. As he says, I went back to work on my station called Shandia, the place where Jim and I had been working together, and I followed that piece of advice from an old English parsonage, do the next thing. I'm told that that's the motto that's carved, I think, over the door of an English parsonage down by the sea. I went back to do the next thing. There was plenty to do, believe me. I prayed at that time a prayer that seemed rather absurd at the time. I said, Lord, if there's anything that you want me to do about the Alka Indians, I'm available, supposing that it was a very safe prayer. Ever prayed any prayers like that that you really had no intention that God should answer? Well, I guess that's really the way I was praying. I thought, I belong to him. I'm his servant. I'm a missionary. Maybe he wants me to go to the Alcas, but it's very doubtful. But anyway, Lord, here I am if there's something you want me to do. And Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. I don't think he meant don't plan your grocery list, don't make provision for your children, don't buy insurance. But what I do think is pretty clear in the passage is that Jesus meant do not worry. Don't be anxious about anything, and don't take on the burdens of tomorrow. Those are really none of your business. If you take on tomorrow's burdens, you won't have strength enough to carry out the work that I have assigned you for today. That's what I thought God was saying to me. So I stuck to the practical and the immediate, the real reasons for my missionary work. The real reasons for my missionary work were the real reasons for my living at all. What do you live for? Whose are you? What is the real reason that you're doing the work that you are doing today? Is it money? Is it because there's nothing else to do? Is it boredom? Is it fun? The real reason for living ought to be a good reason for dying. I knew whose I was. I was not my own. I belonged to God. He had paid a price for me, the price of his own blood. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. So my reason for living is for him, to do his will, to learn to know him. My reason for missionary work was obedience. And so that's why I went back to Shandia. I was not there to do my own thing. I was there to do his thing, and it hadn't changed. God had called me to be a missionary before I ever married Jim Elliott, so nothing had changed as far as my vocation and my calling was concerned. The verse that I had often quoted to people who asked why those five men had gone into savage territory, was First John 2.17. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear, but the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. If obedience is a good reason for dying, it's certainly a good reason for living. And if your reason for living is not worth dying for, may I suggest that it really isn't worth living for. You need to revise your reason. When Amy Carmichael, an Irish missionary to India, established a small group of Indian sisters called the Sisters of the Common Life, this was what she wrote for their rule. It was not a convent. It was not a group of people quite like Catholic nuns or monks, but I'm sure she took her cues from some of the things that she had read, written by monks and nuns about their common life. Their vow was this, Whatsoever thou sayest unto me, by thy grace I will do it. Their constraint, thy love, O Christ my Lord. Their confidence, thou art able to keep that which I have committed unto thee. Their joy to do thy will, O God. Their discipline, that which I would not choose, but which thy love appoints. May God help us to have a good reason for living, which is also a good reason for dying.
0: Gateway to Joy 119, a good reason for living. Kathy Rig is the president of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation. This is an organization set up to preserve and to share the resources connected with Elizabeth, her talks, her writings, and more. Kathy, what have you learned as you've had some time to go through some of the personal items of Elizabeth?
2: Because of the position that I'm in, somewhat being large caregiver as well as um, foundation president, I've had you know a, a privilege of. Going through every bit of Elizabeth's personal belongings that were in her home. One thing that it didn't really surprise me, but I thought was pretty interesting was the fact that she was so meticulous at keeping records. The photos were filed for decades, you know, family treasures. She was the keeper of all the treasures and she collected and preserved and organized them. And really, being able to sift through all these things in her life that were hers. You know, I I saw that she was vulnerable, just as all of us are. She made mistakes, yet she continued to persevere, knowing and recognizing anything she wrote. She always was very transparent about her own frailties and her own flaws. And she readily admitted those. That impression, of recognizing, I mean, really recognizing and going through all these things that she never questioned God. She never countered his will for her life. She obeyed, period. It doesn't surprise me so much about her, but it's just one of those aha moments, I think. In a culture today that is so about self and happiness, she would say, that's drivel. You know, I mean, the focus should be on on the realities that we don't see. It should be God's character, his love and and obedience and being conformed to the image of his son. You know, Jesus was never about himself. And I think just pouring through her legacy that she's left behind, I, I really believe that she centered her will to live her life not to be about him, or her own happiness. And that just impresses my heart.
0: Kathy Reeg, president of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. A little later, we'll hear from Elizabeth's friend, Jean Hamilton, and how Elizabeth was described as a Titus II woman. Right now, though, it's Gateway to Joy 120, A Divine Appointment. As you seek God's will, how does that relate to what you know He's given you to do?
1: I told you in my last talk about what seemed a rather ridiculous prayer that I prayed right after my husband, Jim Elliott, was killed by a tribe of Indians in South America called Alcas. This was back in 1956. And because he and the other four men had attempted to take the gospel to these people and had failed in that attempt, I prayed this seemingly absurd prayer. I said, Lord, if there's anything you want me to do about those Alcas, I'm available. I really didn't expect God to answer a prayer like that. And when we find that we need God's guidance for something, the best way to find that is to stick to what you know God has given you to do. I think if you stick to the given in order, then you will be able to recognize new orders when they come. Sometimes we get distracted from the job which God has clearly given us to do because we're so concerned about some decision that has to be made later. Well, I went back to my station, I stuck to business there, and all sorts of strange things happened. During the next two years, I got piles and piles of mail from people who had read the stories in Life magazine and in the Reader's Digest and also the book that I had written called Through Gates of Splendor giving me all kinds of suggestions about what really ought to be done next about those Alka Indians. I had letters from people telling me the mistakes that the five men had made, why they got killed. I had anthropologists and psychologists giving me their theories and their recommendations and their prescriptions. I had people who had read the encyclopedia to find out what the savage mind is like. One lady wrote to me and she said, please write out the Ten Commandments on a piece of paper and drop them to the Indians from the airplane. She didn't tell me what language they should be written in or how these people were going to read them. Another dear soul sent me $60 to buy Bibles for the Alcas, not realizing, of course, that the Alcas not only didn't have any Bibles, the Alcas didn't even have a written language, nor had they ever heard of such a thing as writing. So there were methods, means, materials, and specific directions galore. But would there ever be such a time? Would such a time ever come when God would actually want me to go in there? I had to keep my mind on today's work. In May of 1957, Johnny Keenan, one of the pilots that was carrying on the work that Nate Saint had begun with Missionary Aviation Fellowship in Ecuador, invited me to fly with him as he was making gift drops over Alka territory. This was certainly the thrill of a lifetime. These were the people who had killed my husband, and yet I didn't hate them, I loved them, and I certainly hoped that somebody, someday, would be able to take the gospel to them. And here was just one little thing that I could do which might contribute something toward that end. And so we flew together in the little tiny plane. Johnny had taken the door off, And I was strapped in very securely next to that door, but I could look straight down quite a few hundred feet to the ground as he dropped the parachute with gifts for these people. And there I could actually see the face of a young man who had had what appeared to be a friendly contact with the five men just before they were killed. Not knowing his real name, the five missionaries had nicknamed him George. There was George. We were flying low enough so that I could actually see his face. He grabbed the package, tore it open, found a hamburger with a bun. He wolfed it down. Well, I can hardly describe the feelings that I had then, but I had been reading the 60th Psalm. O God, thou hast cast us off and broken us. Thou hast been angry and rebuked us cruelly. Thou hast made the land quake and torn it open. It gives way and crumbles into pieces. Thou hast made thy people drunk with a bitter draught. Thou hast given us wine that makes us stagger. That first section of the psalm certainly described some of my feelings when my husband was taken away. I felt rebuked, crumbled. I felt that God had given me a bitter drink. And yet, the psalmist goes on, And at the end of the psalm, this is what he says, Who can bring me to the fortified city? Who can guide me to Edom? Since thou, O God, hast abandoned us and goest not forth with our armies. Grant us help against the enemy, for deliverance by man is a vain hope. With God's help we shall do valiantly, and God himself will tread our enemies underfoot. I sort of took those verses as not exactly a promise, but maybe a hint that God was going to take me to that fortified city, that forbidden, savage territory of the Alcas into which no one had ever gone and come back out alive. My husband and the other men that were killed were just among a number of people who had attempted to reach those people, and none had ever been heard from again. So one day, on the radio, I received an invitation from a missionary named Dr. Tidmarsh asking if I would come to his station, which happened to be the closest one to Alka Territory, and he said, I'm going out for a few days to Quito to do some shopping. My wife, Gwen, really doesn't relish staying alone in the jungle. Would you be willing to come and spend a weekend or a few days with her? Well, I think of the fact that I'm not here to do my own will, but to do God's will To be quite honest, I didn't really want to go to the Tidmarsh's station. I had plenty to do on my own. I had a class of girls that I didn't like to suspend. I was teaching them to read, but I said, well, I'll pray about it. And I did pray about it, and it seemed that the Lord was telling me to go. So I called them on the radio the next day. We had a shortwave contact with all of the mission stations in the jungle. And I eventually flew over to the station called Arahuno, There was another couple that was now staying in Shandia, so they were able to man that station while I was gone. I had only been in Arahuno for a couple of days with my daughter Valerie and Gwen Tidmarsh, when suddenly one morning, quite to our surprise, two Kichwa men from a long way away were at the door. They said, There are two Alka women at our house. Do you want to see them? I had about five minutes to make up my mind. I had given word to these people, the Quichuas who lived nearest to Alca territory, that if ever any Alcas were seen, that they should get word to me. Little could they imagine that they were actually going to find me in person at the station called Atahuno. They were just coming there to send word by radio to me. Yes, I said, I want to see them. So very quickly, having practically no time to really think, I threw a notebook and pencils and a snake-bite kit and some soap and a change of clothes and a blanket and some insect repellent into an Indian-carrying net and set off with these two Quichua Indians. Gwen had offered to take care of my daughter Valerie, so she stayed behind. We hadn't gone more than about one mile when the two Indians turned around and looked at this foreign senora coming along the trail behind them, and they said, You think you can make it? Well, I had been on many trails many times before, but I guess they'd never seen a foreigner make it on one of these trails. The trails were rather rugged, may I say. They were narrow, maybe one foot wide. They often had rocks, mud. They crossed rivers. And as we went along the trail, every once in a while the two Kichwas, who were quite edgy, and one of them had a gun over his shoulder, he said, You know, the Alcas walk these trails too. You see that flattened grass over there, Señora? That means that some Alcas were lying here just last night. You see that hollow place there? That's where an Alca made a camp. And I sort of made fun of what they said. I said, "Alcas, I think that flattened grass is just because of a wild pig." And one of them said, "Wild pig. This woman doesn't know anything." As I traveled along the trail, I was thinking about Jim because I was nearing the territory in which he had been killed. For some reason, the old Negro spiritual came to mind, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. I thought I might be walking into the same kind of a situation that Jim walked into. I had no way of knowing. Finally, after six hours on that trail, we arrived at a little clearing on the Oglan River, where these two Indian men lived. There, before my eyes, were two real, live Alka women. They were dressed by this time. The Kichwa women had put clothes on them during the day. But I could see the large holes in their earlobes, which told me that they were not Kichwas. I couldn't speak a word to them. They couldn't speak a word to me that I understood, but they didn't know that I didn't understand. They talked away. They looked at my matches. They'd never seen anything like that. I showed them my flashlight My watch, one of the Indians showed them a cigarette and tried to get them to smoke it. We got them to taste salt. These were all brand new experiences. We sang and they sang their very strange song of two notes. The Kichwas were afraid when they heard them sing. They said, they're casting a spell. They kept their guns and lances ready in case the Alcas should come out and kill us. They said, perhaps they're going to do the same thing to us that they did to your husband and the rest of the men. During the night, suddenly the dogs barked. The men jumped to their feet with guns and lances ready. You're a decoy, senora. They've just brought you down here in order to kill us all. But that night I found peace in my soul I found that one of the Alka women the next morning, she was shaking with chills and fever. I happened to have some malaria pills with me. I gave her one of the pills. To my amazement, without any hesitation, she swallowed it with some water. How did she know I wasn't trying to kill her? She trusted me. Perhaps that was part of God's answer to prayer. The men went out to work the next morning for a couple of hours, but everybody was restless and apprehensive. This was God's divine appointment for
0: me. Gateway to Joy 120, a divine appointment. Well, we have time to hear a quick comment from Jean Hamilton, a friend of Elizabeth Elliot, and about the concept of the Titus II woman.
2: I had somebody from my church who was an older lady that I actually spent physically spent time with once a week, and, and she taught me how to pray consistently. But with Elizabeth, it was, you know, of course from a distance, but she was definitely one of my tightest two women.
0: Elizabeth's friend, Jean Hamilton there. Well, we've just about run out of time once again, but thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe as you're out getting some exercise, wherever we found you today. Thank you for joining us. And on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the, that's right, the everlasting arms.